let's talk about what we're going to talk about there. So I am um, Twitter's favorite right-wing lawyer. Sure, people follow Kurt Schlichter and Harmy Dillon and many others who have greater followings than mine, but I'm the sentimental favorite. You know what I mean. People do seem to enjoy war stories. I've been involved in a lot of cases, and I am involved in a lot of cases that people find interesting. And I like to talk about them, but in order to understand where I'm coming from and how I've gotten there, as I've mentioned before, I think some background is appropriate. I, uh, I'm originally from Brooklyn. I uh, come from a working class family. My father was a benefits clerk in an architectural firm in uh, New York City, high school graduate. My mother graduated from a New York school as well, uh, high school, which she attended after she immigrated here from Cuba. Her parents are Polish Jewish immigrants. I may have mentioned that in an earlier show. I went to uh, public school in Brooklyn, and then in the early 70s, we moved to suburban New Jersey, where I went to a fairly mediocre suburban high school, but sufficiently distinguished myself that I was admitted to Princeton University, which was a pretty astonishing development from my point of view, and from the point of view of many others who did not see it coming. After Princeton, I attended Northwestern University. This was despite the fact that at Princeton, I had not necessarily distinguished myself academically. I did a lot of things. Very few of them involved studying. I was an economics major. I did well enough. I didn't really know how to study. I had never really had to study before. If I had taken a history as a major, perhaps I would have had a little higher GPA. But I had a good enough LSAT score that I was able to go to Northwestern because I was coming out of Princeton, and they were sort of in a rebuilding mode then. And this is all important because the opportunities you get and your career path for many years, not just your first job, this was one of the lies that we were told, that where you went to law school only matters for your first job. That's not true. If you want to make a lateral move in the legal profession, where you went to law school and whether you were on law review and even in many cases what your GPA was is often very relevant. I did very well at Northwestern in the first year and then I once again reverted to my old habits of not being particularly motivated to study for tests, did other things. I accepted a job as a summer associate in a law firm in New Jersey after my first year called Porzio, Bromberg, and Newman. It was a fine experience, a great experience. It was where I came to understand that I was a litigator and always would be a litigator. We did a moot court for summer associates, and I was told by the head of the firm, you are a litigator. You're born for this, Ron. That was actually pretty nice. Um, so it turns out that uh, I didn't accept a job there. They didn't actually 
that firm in those days did not give offers to first-year clerks, and um, that was their choice. After my second year, I was a summer associate in a law firm called K. Scholler, Fearman, Hayes, and Handler, which seemed to be a good match for me. Very strong litigation firm, known for its antitrust work. I did antitrust work. I liked antitrust. I took two antitrust courses in law school. I was an economics major. I liked policy. I liked it. When I started at K. Scholler, I was ready to go. And within about a year and three months, I was out. I was unprepared. I was not fit. I had the wrong attitude. I didn't fit in. I didn't fit in socially. I failed as an associate in what was then a white shoe law firm in New York. I thought perhaps I would do better in New Jersey, which I had had a good experience in as a summer associate. And I applied to a law firm, a smaller law firm called Orloff, Lowenbach, Stifelman, and Siegel in Roseland, New Jersey. Very few firms were hiring. This was the this was the uh, fall, the summer and fall of 1990. I'm sorry, 1991, which was a pretty bad time to be looking for a junior law firm job. There had been a lot of layoffs in the legal profession, and uh, I nonetheless did snag a job. And very quickly determined that I was unprepared for that job as well, because after a year and small change in a major New York law firm, I didn't know how to do anything. And this law firm assumed that I would be able to do something. I had no clue. I had been doing document review, research and writing. I didn't understand what a litigation file even looked like. And they weren't really fit to train me. And I was in trouble now. I was in my second job. I was not trained to be a junior associate. I was expected to be something other than a first-year associate, which is essentially what I was. I knew I liked litigation, but they weren't going to really show me how to do it there. And I was looking at perhaps a very quick end to my career, less than two years into it. Then I saw that there was an opening at another firm in New Jersey called Lowenstein, Sandler, Cole, Fisher, and Boylan, a professional corporation. Lowenstein Sandler is a very successful law firm. And even then, it was a very successful law firm. It paid the top salary in New Jersey, and I sent them my application, hoping that I could convince them that I would do better in a larger firm than in a smaller firm, but not as large as the one I'd been in in New York. And then I didn't hear anything. And I remember, this is before email, 
This is before websites, before texting, before Instagram, before call-in. This was the snail mail era. You didn't fax resumes. You didn't faxes were not for this. So what did I do? After I mailed in my resume and I waited and I waited, I started discussing it with a friend of mine in the at Orloff who was a more senior associate, very experienced, and was doing rather well there. And uh, that fellow, who is now a judge in New Jersey, said to me, uh, you know, one of our former guys here is now at Lowenstein. Maybe I'll give him a call and see if he can put in a good word for you. Actually, yes, we are looking for some. We are looking for people here. I was hired by Lowenstein. Well, I had not heard back from them. And my wife said, well, you can't call them up and ask. And I said, I really have to call up and ask. I need to know what my future is going to be because they think they're breathing down my neck here at Orloff. It's not going well. So I called up the hiring partner. Again, there were no emails. So it was a rather daring thing to call someone up in those days because between seeing someone in person, there was mail, there was the phone, and then there was nothing or there was the phone and then there was mail. So the phone was a major step. Well, Barry picked up the phone. He hired, and he said, actually, we decided we were going to give you an offer. I just hadn't gotten around to writing to you. That was good news. Told them I walked into Larry Orloff's office, and I told him, Larry, I'm going to, I'm going to solve your problem. I'm moving on to Lowenstein Sandler. He was pretty surprised. He was pretty surprised, but because it was a step up from Orloff, and here I had been something less than an ideal associate. Now, I had been very honest with Lowenstein about my experience at Orloff. It was already a little bit of deja vu, in fact, because you know what else? I'll tell you something funny. I had had the same experience when I left Kay Scholler also. Did I leave you with the impression that Kay Scholler fired me? They didn't. Kay Scholler was definitely going to fire me. I had done so much, so wrong as a junior associate, as a first-year associate at Case Scholler. I knew that I was in trouble, but I got the job at Orloff before Case Scholler had a chance to fire me, and I went in and told the associate director that I had a new job, that I would be leaving, and... That's what he told me, classy guy that he is. Oh, good thing, because we were going to fire you. <laughs> classy, right? Yes, the thing to do would the classy thing to do would have been for him not to tell me that, so that I would why, would, why did I need to know that? You know what? It was a good thing that he told me. It was good for me to know. I needed to know. I moved from. Orloff to Lowenstein Sandler. Lowenstein Sandler at the time was a law firm with about 125, 130 lawyers. It, at the time, included a partner whose name was Ted Wells. He is now the head of the litigation department at Paul Weiss, Rifkin, and Garrison. Even then, Ted was a wild success. He had gone to Stanford where he had gotten his JD and his MBA. He was 
Fantastic. I didn't get to work much with Ted, hardly at all. But I had a great experience at Lowenstein Sandler. I got lots of hands-on experience. There were many, many levels of um, associates and partners, and I got training. And on the other hand, I also developed independence as an attorney. And I was at Lowenstein for three or four years. And the only thing was that the New Jersey salary scale was beginning to fall way behind New York. Now, now it's not even close, but in those days, it was a significant difference. And I was, you know, I had, I had uh, children coming into the world and my wife wasn't working full time anymore. So I started to wonder if maybe I should try to give another shot to New York. Now that I had a better understanding also of what I had to do to succeed as a law firm associate. While I thought about this and sent resumes by first class mail in response to ads, I saw that it was rather impossible to get back into New York from New Jersey. So that didn't seem to be possible until I attended a meeting for a case in Philadelphia where I bumped into one of my former colleagues from Kay Scholler, who had been a senior associate when I was there and who was a partner now in a new firm that had been started by a number of Kay Scholler alumni. And he told me that not only were they looking for lawyers in this firm, but they were looking for lawyers who were admitted in New Jersey and that I had been rather well thought of and it, as he recalled, that that was interesting and nice to hear. Long story short, I left Lowenstein Sandler to go to a firm called Williams and Zevnik. And Williams and Zevnik was going very well for quite some time. For me, anyway. I it was it was I thought I had really beat the system. I went from being a lawyer in suburban New Jersey to making pretty close to the going rate in New York in an office overlooking Central Park in a happening new law firm started by a bunch of K. Scholler alumni where I really liked the people I was working with and they really respected. It was perfect. Within a year, the partners at Williams and Zevnik were at each other's throats. And fighting over everything, fighting over money, over originations. It was a disaster. I was offered the opportunity to join both sides. I declined to join either side because I thought these people are crazy. And in fact, I'm beginning to think this profession is crazy. And I left the practice of law and became a professional writer. Oh, yeah. And I had some, I had some irons in the fire, and I had some connections, and I had some experience, and I got some work, and there was some pot boiling level stuff going on, and I had a book idea, and I had an agent, and there was interest, and we played this out. At the time, Jane was actually, you know, still working. We played this out, and. 
the book was rejected by every publisher and I was visited by a friend of mine from Lowenstein Sandler whose father happened to be the head of another law firm called Pitney Hardin Kip and Such. His father was Clyde Such. And Richard Such said to me, Ron, I think you've given this as good of a run as you're going to give it, but you belong in the legal profession. You've met my dad. He likes you. I think he could probably use you. Let me talk to him. And I went and spoke to Clyde Such at Pitney Hardin Kip and Such, which was a firm that was saw itself as something of a competitor to Lowenstein Sandler. It was a fairly prestigious New Jersey firm about the same size. I spoke to Clyde. They had a New York case that they could use staffing on. Out of New in other words, it's a New Jersey firm, but they had a New York case. My being admitted to the New York bar, which at the time was unusual, believe it or not, for New Jersey lawyers, would be a big plus. He liked my credentials and my background. And I joined Pitney Hart and Kip and Such as a very well taken care of mid-level associate. Clyde had also liked my uh, some writing that I had done on the topic of the internet, and he realized that not very many people understood the internet. And there were only two lawyers at Pitney Hart and Kip and Such that had internet access at their desktops. Yes, believe it or not. And those were Clyde Such and me, Ron Coleman. I was going to help him develop an internet practice. I was at Pitney for four years, and I thought I was going to make part of there. I had done really everything right and very little wrong. I had tried a case to a jury, which most associates and indeed many of the partners at the firm never did and succeeded. I had brought in my own business, same thing. It's not an entrepreneurial firm like Lowenstein Sandler. I had my own clients. Not a lot, but it was, it was something. I was beginning to do some trademark work. Uh, I had brought the firm some renown because of my work on the case of Jews for Jesus versus Brodsky, which was a seminal domain name case in 1998. I had really done everything that had been asked of me, except I had made one mistake. I had not gotten what they call a rabbi, I had not gotten a sponsor, someone who was going to make it his business to make me partner. That person could have been Clyde Such, should have been Clyde Such, but it wasn't. And when I was eligible for partnership, they told me, uh, we haven't considered you. We actually, actually, we'd like to move you to the corporate department because our litigation department doesn't do this intellectual property stuff. So maybe you'd do better in the corporate department. This is that you're telling this to an associate who had just tried a case, a jury, a jury case for a Fortune 500 company to a successful outcome that you want to send him to the corporate department. Uh, I didn't think I had a future in a place that, you know, if they had told me wait till next year, if they had told me. Here's what you need to do. But instead, it was like I wasn't on anybody's radar. 
So I joined a dot-com company. This was a dot-com company that I had brought to the firm as part of, of, of achieving what Clyde Such had asked me to do, which was to develop a technology practice where we would get equity. The firm would get equity, and we would be part of the dot-com boom of the late 90s. I joined that company. You never heard of it, so I'm not going to say the name. I was there for about a month when the boom became the bust. Remember the dot-com bust? That was us. The funding we had been promised by venture capitalists or a venture fund was withdrawn. It had not yet been dispersed. There was no money, there was no product, there was no company, and I was unemployed. I was unemployed. So what do you do when you're unemployed as a lawyer, out about 10 years, with a sort of checkered career, but who, but you know you can do it? I didn't really know what I was going to do. But I did think that while trying to figure it out, I would do temp work. And I put my name up as a temp with an agency, and very quickly, seeing that I had pretty nice credentials, Princeton, Northwestern, three law firms that we recognize, maybe four, I was sent on an assignment to a firm that needed litigation help called Gibney, Anthony, and Flaherty, located in the Rolex building on 5th Avenue at 53rd Street. They were essentially an R a captive law firm of the Rolex watch company. And this was great because I had I had the trademark experience because I had done the Jews for Jesus versus Brodsky case. I had federal court experience and big firm experience, which the latter of which not too many people at Gibney had, if any. And my friend at the time offered me, uh, my, my, my employer at the time said, what would it take to get you to come here permanently? And I told him what it would take. And he was pretty much able to get it for me. I was not negotiating from a position of strength, but I nonetheless saw the opportunity and took it for all it was worth. He was very eager to have me there. The most important thing to me Besides the fact that I had gone from unemployment to a $60,000 raise in compensation, the most important thing to me was that I was begetting the title of partner. Boom. I turned the corner. Now I was a partner. And once you are called a partner, you're a partner. And it was glorious. This was a fun job. This, first of all, 53rd and 5th, this was a very, very chic part of town. This was before Manhattan, that part of Midtown, got quite so touristy. It was just great. Nice new offices, great location, really interesting work in intellectual property enforcement, really specialized area focusing very much on counterfeiting work. They really got a lot of chops there, and that was really great for me because I had always, I really had wanted to focus on, on trademarks and intellectual property. I didn't have the courage to f take that route. In fact, I'd been advised 
not to not to specialize too early in my career and I and I didn't and that's probably in the long run was better for me because I ended up having a very broad range of litigation skills that I might not have gotten if I had focused on intellectual property I love the people I was working with especially Brian Brocate head of the department uh, the only thing that went wrong was that they they couldn't keep me busy. They really had hoped that by having somebody with a big firm background and an Ivy League background, that this would help them develop more non-counterfeiting business, but it didn't. And that left us with Ron Coleman having negotiated a pretty nice salary for himself and having very, very little to do and not earning his keep. And the only thing worse than not earning your keep in a law firm is knowing that you haven't earned your keep and knowing that, feeling that, again, hot breath on your neck. So after less than three years at Gibney, Anthony, and Flaherty, I left on the best of terms and started my own law firm, the Coleman Law Firm. And that was a real turning point for me because at this point, although I, not although, at this point, no one was going to give me business. I was going to have to get it all myself. And I felt that I knew how to do this because I was a pretty good with the internet and I had gravitated toward the internet and I saw that it was possible to market oneself on the internet if he knew what he was doing if he had just a sense for how to do it and I did I was very fortunate in that I won a collection. I, I, I succeeded in a collection case that was referred to me by one of my former partners at Gibney and where I got a 20% cut of, of a, what was it? A $200,000 debt. And uh, suddenly I had, I was sitting or $250,000. I had a $50,000 fee. It's a nice way to start out capitalizing your law firm. Maybe a little too nice because I ended up, feeling that I was a little bit rich. But I did spend the money wisely at first. I hired a friend of mine that I knew from Princeton who was an experienced marketing writer, and we designed a website for the Coleman Law Firm that enabled me somehow to project that competence and confidence and yet quirkiness and what is now a rather tired message, which is I have a, bag, a big firm background, but for small firm value and attention. And I threw it up on the Internet. And the thing is, lots of law firms didn't have websites then. In fact, maybe even the majority didn't. I had a law firm website. It was colorful and unusual, and I had all these publications on there from all the work that I had done, because I was always writing, I was always doing other things. This is a theme we're going to return to. I always had all these extracurriculars. I would write articles. I would take 
parts of briefs and turn them into articles. I had had many speaking engagements. So, hmm. I just threw the website out there. And notwithstanding the early development of search engine optimization, I began to pick up a little bit of business. People found me. I registered for everything you could register for online in terms of listings. In those days, you had to register on the Yahoo search engine to be included in its results. And I did that promptly. I also had begun reading blogs. And I saw there was a service called Blog Ads. And being a natural marketer, I designed some blog ads. And for my law firm, which was unusual, and which it was fairly unregulated space in those days. And I had some fun with them. And I bought ads on blogs like Dean's World and Instapundit. And I began to pick up some attention people and 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 I also started to do pro bono work because people heard of me through these blog ads and if I if they couldn't afford my fees but the case interested me because because of my developing interest in free speech on the internet because of my work on the Brodsky versus Jews for Jesus domain case I would do the work in exchange for link love. People who had blogs would get my help in exchange for links to my blog or to my website, to my website, which, which made the SEO better and which made my name pick up some speed. And the Coleman law firm began to become a thing. And we got into some interesting cases. And I developed some interesting relationships. And after about two years, I was very close to bankruptcy. Oh, I had a lot of business. I really had a pretty decent amount of business. But I came out of these big firms where you you, you operated on a leverage model. And I wasn't going to do, like, I needed people to service the business so I could do the marketing. And I was naively paying people on a W-2 basis. I was confident the firm would grow. I had found some real diamonds in the rough to work for me. And they were getting paid, but I wasn't getting paid, and I was borrowing money to make payroll. And I ran out of money. I didn't, I wasn't... You know, I might have made it if I had been adequately capitalized. If, if I hadn't won that first $50,000 fee and come to understand that you need in a, pretty much always to have a line of credit, you need to have a rational business plan. But instead, I had this money. So I sort of did a Ponzi scheme on myself. And I had to shut down the Coleman Law Firm before it got even worse. And I did. Where did I go next? The New York Law Journal. Again, there was still nothing really all that much happening on the internet. I'm pretty sure it was a hard copy of the New York Law Journal where I found an ad for a law firm looking for someone with his own portable business who wanted to be, who might be interested in becoming a partner with three others. 
I entered the ad from Brager Wexler and Eagle. They had lost their fourth partner in a four-man suite in the Lipstick Building on 3rd Avenue. Beautiful building. All the way over on the east side. And I joined up with them. It was an every man, every man for himself, eat what you kill kind of situation. I would have to do my own work. There was an associate available, but it was it was a good therapy for what I had done wrong in the Coleman Law Firm. Uh, because every you 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 had to pay for every resource that you used. And I was with good guys who were good lawyers, and I liked working with them. And I liked learning from them. And I began to build on my reputation, and by then I had started the Likelihood of Confusion blog, which was one of the early trademark blogs. I started it in 2005. It took off because I'm really good at blogging, and I had some interesting experience and an interesting point of view, and I always like to do something besides focusing on my work, see? Did I say we're going to come back to that later? I went over to Breger Wexler and Eagle, and it was okay. I was doing okay. But it was getting to be very expensive because they kept raising the rent in the Lipstick Building, which is a very expensive building. At the time, Latham and Watkins had their New York office in there. This was a high-end building. And some of us were doing better than others. I mean, I was doing okay, but not great. And I approached the other partners and said, guys, can't we do what we're doing here in any other building on 3rd Avenue? This is really kind of a luxury location. Why are we here? And one of them actually agreed with me, and he was probably the wealthiest one. But two others did not agree with me. They didn't want to move. They felt that it was worth it for them to stay. So I had to look for something else. So now I'm already looking for job. It's not a job, right? I'm a partner. I now have my own practice. Wherever I work, it's not a job anymore. But now I have position number six, seven. I'm beginning to lose, lose count, right? So I moved to a law firm that doesn't even exist anymore. A recruiter convinced me to join a firm where Pollard... Hoffman, Pollard, and Pollock. Hoffman, Pollock, and Pollard. Hoffman. It was essentially a real estate law firm. The head of the firm was a guy who basically owned a lot of real estate. He was a lawyer. The lawyering was kind of a hobby for him. But he wanted, he, he had a partner who did criminal law, and he had a partner who did divorce law. They pretty much kept themselves busy, but Jonathan, decent enough guy, he, he wanted to grow his firm by adding on lateral partners, and he was willing to take risks. So he brought me in from Brager Wexler, and I was pretty sure after a short time there that I was, I was finished. It was over. I was miserable. It was in a. It was in the the Daily News, the old Daily News building, all the way over on uh, First Avenue. You have to remember, I live in New Jersey, so I'm, I'm commuting to Third Avenue, commuting to 
First Avenue, oh, crossing. First, in other words, first you come in from New Jersey, and then you have to cross the entire width of Manhattan Island. Well, I was still fairly young, though. And guys, I'm going to be finishing up this first part of this as we get to halfway in my career. But it was so depressing. It was such a mediocre law firm. How mediocre of a law firm was it? I'll tell you how mediocre it was. There was a corporate department, which meant there was one guy who was a corporate lawyer there. And I said to him, I had a question about Delaware corporate law that had come up in a litigation matter. And I asked him what he th- his opinion. And he looked at me and said, we don't really do much with Delaware law here. Now, if there are any non-lawyers listening to this or non-business people listening to this, let me explain to you that Delaware law is basically the standard law, certainly for publicly held companies. But Delaware is historically one of the most attractive places for people to establish their businesses. What this guy basically did was formed LLCs for doctor, for medical practices and real estate, uh, you know, real medical practices and the buildings the doctors bought. He didn't know anything about Delaware law because he didn't have to. It was a mediocre firm. My career was at a dead end. I had blown it. I hadn't done everything wrong. I hadn't done everything right. I was very well known because of the work I, the writing I had done and the pro bono work I had done and some of the adventures I'd had. But I was at a dead end until a recruiter called me up in the middle of my sixth or seventh job and told me about a law firm called Getz Fitzpatrick. At Getz Fitzpatrick, I took off. But we'll talk about that in the part two of my so-called career, which will be later this week. I promise you, when I tell you the whole story, everything that follows on this show in the litigation bag will make much more sense to you. And you will come to feel even more affection for me and respect for my phenomenal God-given talents than you ever thought possible. Is there anyone who has any comments or does anyone have any comments or uh, advice? Oh, I've already, boy, people, yes. Yes, sir. Uh, How are you? Good, thanks. What's up? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of litigation wars recently, like the Johnny Depp, the uh, case, this uh, also with this uh, Dobbs versus Jackson case. Yeah. And uh, I would love to hear your comment on that. And I'm going to put myself on Well, uh, what exactly is the question? I'm not sure I understand the question, Peter. Yeah, basically, uh, you're talking about the litigation wars, right? So I think uh, this yeah. Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard has to be a win, right? Because it yes. after the... Uh, the tabloid in England first and then lost there and came back 
I'm pretty sure he spent all the money. That's a litigation war. And, uh, uh, you know, I would kind of want to take whether you have any comments. You know, I actually, I, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a link uh, in the room in a second. I'm just going to, I'm going to find it. And you will see there that I actually had quite a bit to talk about in a, in a video that I did uh, on the Johnny Depp trial. Is it on YouTube? It is on YouTube. I'm just gonna oh. I'm just gonna fi find it here. Uh, yes, share, copy link, and you'll see. Okay, edit room. Oh, I could put it actually in the chat. I'll put it in the chat. Fantastic. Yeah, and it's called "Why Is This Trial Happening?" And I think you'll I think you'll have a lot of your questions answered in in that um, in the, in that little bit there. Got it. But I'm going to thanks. Thanks for your question. Okay, peace out, guys. I'm going to I'm going to finish the story of my so-called career next week. I mean, later in the week, and we'll take it from there. Good night. Thank you, sir.